Guys, before I read you my text, which, by the way, is in 1 Samuel 18, I just want to explain a couple of things about what I'm up to. Um, I'm fresh, freshly back from spending uh, four or five days with your high school students, which I, uh, I really enjoy. I, I, um, I, uh, it, you can't imagine what it does to me to find out that there is a, a 15-year-old girl in the group whose parents that I married. <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's it's just it's just fun to get to know your kids. But um, uh, I tell them, I explain to them that uh, the thing, the, the the series that I preach for them is nothing that I reached into a file and pulled out and warmed up and delivered to them. It's all brand new stuff. But then I go on to say that uh, though I'm not the busiest man in the entire world, um, when I commit that kind of time to do it, I I, um, I have to use it. For the larger congregation, so I have their permission to do so. So, what you're about another part of my motivation is really that I want you as parents to hear what your kids heard. But that's what this is. What I want to spend uh, uh, the next well, <laughs> I want to spend spend four Sunday mornings uh, talking about a very little known character in the Bible. Um, uh, this person's name is Michael, and uh, that's not to be confused with the archangel Michael. Uh, everyone knows that angels are men. Uh, but this is a woman. This is Michael, uh, a woman who is uh, first mentioned in 1 Samuel 14 as the second daughter of Saul uh, and his wife Ahinoam. Now, guys, uh, just for those of you who are, are somewhat new to all this, don't confuse this Saul with the New Testament Saul. Uh, you remember Saul in the New Testament is the guy whose name gets changed to Paul. Well, there's an Old Testament Saul, too. Uh, that Saul is the one who is the father of Michael, and he was the first king of Israel. You know, he was the one that started off pretty good, and then, and then he, uh, he ended pretty bad. But um, that's who this is. This is the second daughter uh, of Saul and Ahinoam, um, who saw her father, first, of course, being the first king of Israel. Throughout this uh, study of uh, Michael, I hope to point out to you uh, how often she is called the daughter of Saul and uh, suggest to you the significance of that, why she is so frequently called the daughter of Saul. Well, um, that's, that's what we're doing. That's who we're talking about. Maybe you've heard of her before. If not, buckle up and hopefully you'll uh, find out some things about this uh, little known person whose name is Michael. Our text is found in 1 Samuel 18. If you can uh, grab your Bibles, and I can grab my glasses, I'd like to read to you, beginning uh, at verse 17, and reading to you from uh, down to verse 29. So you follow in your copies as we read this, this opening episode, this introductory episode to the life of Michael. Begins uh, in verse 20. 1 Samuel 18, 20. Here we go. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. 
Uh, by the way, that uh, said to David a second time, this is the second time that Saul has promised him one of his daughters. We'll get to that later. But uh, And 22, and Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delighted in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And the and Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, um, there's a principle that we are going to start with that you've got to get down before you can ever understand what, what I'm saying. Or Actually, it's a, it's a principle that will help you in your whole study of the Old Testament. If you, can, um, if you can just wrap your mind around this. It's not hard. It's really not. But it may be new to some of you. Guys, um, the story in the Old Testament, uh, which is the central story or is the predominant story, put it that way, uh, of the entire Old Testament is the story of the life of David. Not, not just his life, but his Psalms as well. You know, the shepherd boy, the, the great songwriter of Israel, David. Uh, there, there's more uh, chapters dedicated to David and his life and his, and his kingship. Than, than anybody else, including Abraham, Moses. I, I, I guess you could say that maybe Moses is the lead story. But, but um, okay, then David is the second story. But I would suggest that the, um, the, the, the most predominant story in the Old Testament is the life and times and kingship and songs of David. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that David is a type of Christ. Now, that's the principle that you've got to get down. Now, if, if that's new to you, let me let me see if I can um, explain. Guys, the Bible is full of types. Um, l- l- let me give you some examples. Um, I, to me, the, the clearest one is um, uh, Passover. You remember that in Exodus 12? Uh, when, when they were coming out of Israel, excuse me, coming out of Israel was coming out of Egypt and they were told to take blood and, 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 uh, paint it across the doorpost of their homes. And, and, uh, if they, if they put blood on the doorpost of the homes, then the death angel would pass over 
so that their lives would be protected under the shed blood of the Lamb. Now, guys, that's a great story. It's a true story. It's an historic event about the deliverance of Israel from Egypt's uh, Egyptian bondage. Yes. But it is also a type. Don't you see it? It's, it's pretty obvious. Uh, a family is going to be safe if they are covered by the blood of a lamb. What does that make you think of? You see, it's a type. It, uh, types are things that are supposed to be foreshadowing uh, people, places, events that will come later. The, the Old Testament is a wonderful history book, yes. But every story in the Old Testament is supposed to land you in the lap of Christ. It's supposed to give you some kind of prefigurement, some kind of hints, some kind of tastes about what will come later and will be fulfilled in Christ. You want another one? This is one that uh, people seem to know. Genesis 22. Abraham is told to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. So he takes his son over there, and they're walking up the hill, and and uh, Isaac says, uh, you know, I see the fire, I see the wood, I see the knife, and uh, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, don't you worry, my son. God will himself provide a sacrifice. Do you see it? And then, of course, Abraham's got the knife. He's about to kill his son. And before he does, the voice of God says, stop it. I, you know, that's enough. And there's a, there's a ram that's caught in the thicket and they sacrifice it. That's a great story. It's a great event. It's a true story. It's not a metaphor. It really happened. But it's a type. It's supposed to make you think, oh, wait a minute. God himself will provide a sacrifice. And then we go to the New Testament. We find, there he is. That's what types do. They're just, they're just pictures. They're portraits. They're foreshadowings. They're prophetic. And the Bible is full of them. All of which point to and consummate in the person of Christ. Those are what types are. And what I'm saying is, The reason that David is, the study of David's life is such a fascinating thing to so many of us is because David is a type of Christ. And when when you watch David doing things, um, you're supposed to be thinking, oh, that's predictive of, or foreshadowing of it's a hinting to it's a it's a vague kind of cloudy pointing to something that will consummate in and and culminate in christ so when you study the life of david which is the central story the predominant story in the old testament you must always be keeping in mind god is giving me some hints some hints about Christ. What, what, um, what I'm getting as I read the story of, of David is that I'm getting some kind of prefigurements of what Christ will do, what he will be, 
what will happen, what will take place later on in the New Testament David's life? Christ. In the ultimate David, Christ. You got that? Because that's imperative. Anytime you, you, you study David and slaying the giant Goliath, that's pointing to something. It's pointing to something that culminates in Christ. I hope you get that. So now when you're studying your Old Testaments and you come to those, gosh, um, four, maybe five chapters, uh, not five chapters, five books dedicated to David, not including the Psalms, then, then maybe you'll read them just a little bit differently. Because when you read about David and those great events, they're great events and they're, they're helpful in themselves, but they are also types because David is a type of Christ. Now, you got that. That's an introductory principle that you got to get down because we're going to study Michael, who was in David's life. Now, guys, all the people that you see that come into the life of David, people who come in and go out of the life of David, people like Abner, Joab, Ahithophel, Abiathar. <laughs> These are names of people in the Old Testament who were in some way related to David. And you watch them come into and you and go out of the life of David. Um, you watch them relate to David and David relate to them. You watch them as they um, figure out how they're going to be involved with David. And you watch David figure out how he's going to be involved with them. And so when you, when you, when you're looking at people related to the life of David, who is a type of Christ, what you're seeing is a, is a illustration of how people today relate to Christ and how he relates to them. You get that? You're watching David relate to some of his peers. And, and because he's a type of Christ, it's a, it makes for a great story to hear about David and Abiathar. But there's more there than just the story. The story is trying to give you a hint of, of how some people are going to ultimately relate to Christ later on. I, I, I hope, I hope you're with me. Because if you, if you got that, then there is rich, rich stuff in this story about Michael. Every Old Testament story is to take you to Christ. It's every story in the Old Testament is supposed to do that, but particularly David, because David is just, it's clearer when you're talking about David. Now, all that by way of introduction. We come to Michael. And from the moment that we meet her, in, in verse 20, she is called Saul's daughter, and we are told that she loves David. That's what, you're, that's what you find there in, in verse 20. It's not a bad start. We are being told that there's a person whose name is Michael who comes along, and she loves David, a type of Christ. 
Okay? Okay. Gang, the point that the story is making about Michael from the very beginning is not that simply she loves David. That's not, that's not the, the whole story. It's, 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 we're not told that she simply loves him. We're told that she is to become his wife. Um, after that abortive attempt, actually, it's, it's described in verses 17 through 19. I told you that Saul offered his number one daughter to her, to him, and ultimately he changed his mind and gave her to another man. Well, um, we, we come to this story where Michael is the number two daughter and she is to be his wife on the heels of this very ugly incident that occurs in verses 17 through 19. The point is simply that Michael loves David and is to become his wife. Again, that's very important. And it's important for this reason. Actually, it's, it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, because David is a type of Christ. She wants to become his bride. That makes it pretty important. But secondly, the image, the metaphor, the picture of marriage is one that the Bible uses frequently to describe the relationship that we have with the Lord God Almighty. Guys, Jesus himself calls himself a, a bridegroom. You remember that? Remember when John the Baptist sent his, um, sent his people over to talk to Jesus and said, listen, um, are you the one that's supposed to come or are we supposed to wait for somebody else? And uh, so he answers that question. He says, well, let me ask you this. Why do your disciples, uh, why, why does John's disciples fast and, and your disciples don't fast? And Jesus says, in reply, he says, y- you want to you know why we don't fast? Because nobody fasts when the bridegroom is around. I mean, when the bridegroom is among you, nobody's going to fast. The, the, the point I'm simply making is that Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom. Do you see that? The bridegroom over here is David. But he's just, he's about to marry a woman who says she loves him, whose name is Michael. Jesus identifies himself as a bridegroom and his bride. That would be the church. That would be us. But, but back to my point, and that is that the Bible frequently uses this image of a marriage to describe the relationship that exists between us and God. Let me just read you one. I could read them all day, but I'm just going to read you one. This is out of Isaiah 54, verse 5 and 6. It says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife. Deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Your maker is your husband. You find it in Jeremiah, you find it in Ezekiel, you find it in the New Testament. The, 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 the metaphor of a husband and a wife is often used to describe the relationship that we have with God. 
He's the husband, we're the bride. He's the groom, we're the bride. Now, guys, the reason I think that the Bible uses that metaphor so frequently is because it is so incredibly rich with meaning. Marriage. Marriage. Guys, stay with me. All kinds of metaphors in the Old Testament. All kinds of metaphors in the Bible. There is the metaphor of a king and his subjects. God's the king, we're the subjects. There is the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. There is the metaphor of the father and the sons. He's the father, we're the sons. And all of those are wonderful metaphors. They're good, they're helpful, they're, they're accurate, they're, they're, they're meaningful. But they are not enough. Because none of those metaphors, king to subject, shepherd to sheep, father to son, none of those metaphors speak to the things that this metaphor of marriage speaks. For instance, intimacy. There is not an intimacy between a shepherd and a sheep, but there is an intimacy between a husband and a wife. Guys, if a, if a subject rebels at the king, well, the king can do a couple of things. He can execute his subject or he can, you know, scold him. Um, if a sheep wanders from a shepherd, um, the shepherd is exasperated and can, you know, slap the sheep a little bit and get him back in line. If a son disobeys a father, the son can be punished by that father. But when a wife, when a wife is unfaithful to her husband, there is no pain like the pain of the betrayal and the rejection and the disloyalty that is spoken of when a wife is disloyal to her husband. It's, um, it's a pain that's indescribable that some of you have experienced, I'm sad to say. Guys, I have three daughters. And my daughters, um, do, do you know what the word consanguine means? I have consanguinity with my three girls. That means that I have three girls who have blood just that, that is mine. I have the same blood. That's what consanguine means. It means the same blood. Um, the, my blood is flowing through the veins of three girls in this world. And my daughters can hurt me and have hurt me. But the hurt that is inflicted by a daughter to a father does not compare to the hurt that is inflicted by a wife to a husband. And I'm not consanguine with her. I don't have the same blood as I with my wife. But the pain 
that is brought about when a wife is unfaithful to her husband. There's no pain like it. There's no relationship. I mean, this metaphor of husband and wife. Remember, we're introduced to Michael. She says she loves him and is going to be his wife. This metaphor of a, of a husband and a wife. That, 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 that bond that exists between a bride and a bridegroom. It speaks of several things. It speaks of um, priority, for instance. That is, in marriage, there is to be no competition, right? There are to be no suitors. Oh, when I was dating, yeah, hey, you know, I could date her, I could date her, I could date her, but be, be fine. But once I'm married, all the competition is supposed to disappear. No more suitors, no more competition, no more, nobody else in this mix but me and, the, and the, my wife. That, that, that this relationship is now supposed to be the priority of my life. That's what that metaphor speaks to, but it speaks to more. Not only does it speak to priority, it also speaks to intimacy. Guys, um, you, you know the, the story in Genesis 4 where Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Seth? The, the Hebrew language speaks of sexual intimacy in terms of knowing. That is a, a full, complete, vulnerable knowing. I mean, um, on, on that night that Adam went into the tent and knew Eve, do you realize what's going on? Everybody get that? I mean, did, did Adam go into the tent and say, uh, hello, madam, my name is Adam. That's not what's happening, ladies and gentlemen. When the Bible speaks of Adam knowing Eve, it's speaking of intimacy. It's, it's speaking of a bond, of a closeness that exists between bride and bridegroom. Gang, I can hide things from my kids. I can hide things from my friends. But I cannot hide anything from my wife. She knows. Let there be some kind of disturbance in our relationship. And she knows. How does she know? Ah, well, you know, I don't know. But because there's such a shared intimacy in this relationship, there is a, there is a sixth sense that comes along with this glorious relationship called marriage. And that's the metaphor that's being used to describe our relationship with God. But it not only speaks of priority and intimacy, it also speaks of, of, of something or of the power of the life, the life-changing power of a marriage. Guys, nobody can change me like my wife can change me. Nobody can, I mean, if you're a, if you're a bride, if the whole world thinks you're ugly, let your husband say you're beautiful and that's enough. Let me lose four jobs and be turned out on my ear. And all my wife has to say is, but you're a fine man. The whole world can, can then toss me under the bus. But there's one person who has such amazing power to influence my life. 
That's what is being communicated in this metaphor of, of bride and bridegroom. There's one more thing, guys. There's one more thing that exists in this metaphor. And that is we're told, we're told in the New Testament, that a husband who loves his wife is supposed to be willing to die for her. Guys, when I read you this text, did you see David? He did something almost like that. He certainly put his life on the line. Saul said, hey, I want 104 skins. He said, well, no problem. I'm going to go get you 200. He goes out and risks life and limb because he wants that woman. So what does the Lord Jesus do? He doesn't risk life and limb. He gives life and limb so that he can have that bride. So that he can have that woman. And that would be you. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about this husband. But I know of another husband who not only risked his life, but gave his life and gave it willingly. Guys, the first question that this story about Michael presses on you is this. Are you married? Are you married to Christ? Is Jesus just some kind of boss to you? Or is he your spouse? With everything that that means. Priority. Intimacy. Life. Guys, the point of this story about Michael is not so that you might see the beauty of Michael, because very honestly, you're going to see before it's over, she's not very not very beautiful. The issue at stake in this story about Michael is not the beauty of the bride. We're not beautiful. The point of this story is about the beauty of the bridegroom. One more story and I'm done. Guys, there is this strange story in the Old Testament. I don't know whether you've read it before, but if you haven't, it's in Numbers chapter 5. You can go read it this afternoon. It's, it's called the Law of Jealousy. Um, have you ever heard of that? The Law of Jealousy. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was called the Test for Adultery. Here's what happened. If you were a husband and you had a wife and uh, you thought your wife was kind of messing around on you, then Israel provided a means by which you could discern whether she'd been faithful. And it was called a test for adultery or the law of jealousy. And the law of jealousy made these provisions. 
The provisions were that if you are, you know, kind of wondering what, what your wife is up to, if she's messing around on you, you took her to the over to the sanctuary, over to the temple or the sanctuary. Anyway, you took her over to the church house. And, um, and you go to the priest and you say, listen, uh, Mr. Priest, uh, you know, I'm, I've got some questions about my wife. I'm not sure she's been faithful to me. And he says, fine, no problem. We'll figure this out. This is all in Numbers chapter 5, ladies and gentlemen. Go read it if you're, if you, you know, I'm just embellishing a bit. But, um, uh, Mr. Priest, I'm concerned about my wife. Okay, fine. Let's, here's the test. And so here's what he would do. He would scrape some dirt off of the sanctuary floor. And he'd take a, a tablespoonful, I guess, and he would mix it in a glass of water. And once it was all mixed up in there, he would hand it to the bride and say, okay, here's the test for adultery. This is called the law of jealousy. Now, here's what I want you to do, little lady. I want you to drink this, this uh, little potion I just cooked up here. You go ahead and drink it. And here's the deal. If you are innocent, if you have been faithful to your husband, nothing will happen. I mean, you'll drink it and, you know, it'll, everything will be fine. But if you have not been faithful to your husband, your leg is going to rot off. Can you imagine being a little woman and somebody handing you that glass and you know that you have been unfaithful and you're thinking, I'm about to rot my leg off because I've been untrue to my husband. I wonder how many rotten legs we'd have in this room. But that's not really my point. I have read that story, and I've read that story, and I've read that story. And about, I don't know, two years ago, it struck me. Why is there only a test for the woman? (laughs) I mean... Why isn't there a, a test of adultery for the, for, the, for the man? I mean, surely they don't believe that the only people that have been unfaithful have been the, have been the women. I mean, I mean, guess what we've got on, in the 21st century? I mean, it's kind of evenly split, I guess. I, and I really don't know. But, you know, it's kind of wise being unfaithful, husband being unfaithful, everybody being unfaithful. Because I'm bored. But why wasn't there a test for the men? tell you why. Because remember, all of these stories in the Old Testament were to point to Christ. And the only husband that has been perfectly faithful to his bride is Christ Jesus. Are you married to him? The story is all about how ugly is the bride and how beautiful 
is the bridegroom. Our Father, I I do pray that by the power and might of the Holy Ghost that you would reveal to us in a way never before known how beautiful is our Savior. Show us, O God, the great depth of beauty that is in our Christ. Father, we know, at least... We know a portion of the depth of the ugliness of the bride. But what we don't know is the grand and glorious beauty of our faithful bridegroom. Show us that, Lord, for the nourishments and strength and might of our souls. We ask it, of course. In Jesus' name.